Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles. I'm the managing director of B Squared and the host of the Sendcast. If this is your first Sendcast, then welcome to the podcast. The aim of the podcast is really, really simple. We really want everyone to know more about special education needs and disability. And that's why we're doing this every week. In this episode, we'll be discussing how to engage with people with SEMH and other behaviour needs. And my guest this week is Adele Bates. Adele is a behaviour and education specialist. She empowers school teachers to support people with behavioural needs and SEMH to thrive with their education. And she also has written a book with a root word in the title. The Sendcast is created and produced by us here at B Squared. We are here to help show the small steps of progress people with SEND make. And we help lots of schools to show progress for a wide range of abilities and ages. If you're a primary school struggling to show progress or struggling to identify where people isn't making progress, then we can help. And as always, did you know we are more than just SEN? You can now use B Squared for all pupils. It saves you time, it saves you money, and it makes the whole school data process so much simpler. Visit the B Squared website or click on the meeting link in the show notes to book a meeting with me to take you through how our assessment software can simplify the process and save you money. Let's get on with the podcast. On this week's show, we're discussing engaging pupils with SEMH and other behaviour needs. My guest is Adele Bates. Adele is a behaviour and education specialist. She empowers schools to support pupils with behavioural needs and SEMH to thrive with their education. She has taught for over 20 years. She researches behaviour and inclusion for Finland, Dominican Republic and Costa Rica. And she's also the book or called Miss I Don't Give a <clears throat> Something. Engaging with challenging behaviour in schools. If I say the word, I have to put a warning on, so I'm not going to. Welcome to the show, Adele. <laughs> that was very impressive. You will not be sent down the corridor, Dale, because you have not sworn. Well done. <laughs> Although I can't promise I will, because obviously the title of my book kind of rolls off my tongue. Miss, I don't give a bleep. I'll have to try. <laughs> yes. I do have a panel of buttons on my thing, which I could use for bleeping things out. But I've never actually got that confident in doing it. It's quite entertaining. <laughs> so first of all, I do love the title of the book. Nice and blunt to the point. And most of us know that behaviour is communication, mm -hmm. but how do we help schools to change how those pupils communicate? How do we get people to, the rest of the stuff, to understand it is communication? Mm, okay, so you're starting with a quick one then. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the first thing to say it is, you just kind of touched upon it. It's about how we think and view and perceive what's going on in the first place. Now, you said, how do we get the kids to change their communication? We can't get kids to change communication. We can't get anyone to do anything. What we can do is we can foster. Look, he's laughing at me now. You can't see, but Dale is currently laughing at Adele. So what we can do, what, what is within our control is how we behave and the tools that we give to the children in order to help them with their communication. So I work in a mixture of mainstream schools and I work across pupil referral units, alternative provisions, special schools with children with SEMH, social, emotional, mental health issues. And in those schools particularly, I'm working with some kids who have all been excluded from mainstream, if not once, sometimes twice. I once worked with a kid who'd been excluded six times. I mean, if that doesn't tell you there's something wrong with the system, I don't know what is. But anyway, the point is, once you are working with children who have such extreme needs around behaviour and social, emotional, mental health, often and quite understandably, they have closed towards education. They don't give a bleep, as my book title suggests. And so the, this process that you're asking about, about communication, we, we have to really unpick it. And that's what I do at the start of my book. I look at the title, Miss I Don't Give a Bleep, look, I'm doing well so far. Um, <laughs> and I, I suggest all these different ideas of what that sentence could mean. It could mean, go away, I can't be bothered. It could mean, don't come too close because 
that makes me feel scared. It might mean, don't ask me to read out loud, miss, because I can't read. I've got a reading age of four and I'm 15. It might mean, like, there's so many different things that that sentence could mean. And hence why I chose it as the title of the book. Because if we just take it at face value, I think a good way to do this, okay, listen, and for the listener listening, let's go on this little journey. I'd like you to just imagine an iceberg. And at the top of the iceberg is the bit we can see above the sea line, right? And above there, we'll see the behavior that's coming out. That might be the aggression. It might be the conflict. It might be the swearing. It might be the thrown desk. It might be the shrugged shoulders. It might be the head on the desk disengaging, whatever it is. That's the behavior we can see. But this behavior does not come from nowhere. A human being does not throw a desk at another human being for no reason. So just take a little second yourself. What would it take you personally to throw a desk at somebody? What would have had to have happened in order for you to react in that way? And maybe some of you have thrown a desk at a human. I don't know. And so underneath the iceberg, so the iceberg at the top, the tip of the iceberg is the bit we can see. And underneath that, then we get the reasons why. We get the unmet needs. We start to see things like the shame, the humiliation, the sadness, the grief, the embarrassment, whatever it is. And then around that iceberg that's underneath the sea is is the rest of the ocean. And that we start getting context. We start getting this child's social context, what's going on in their family, what's going on in their culture, whether they've got any characteristics that means they are in an intersectionality of discrimination whether they have adverse childhood experiences, all these kind of things are all under the sea. And so I'm particularly thinking of a mainstream school. If we are not careful, we just see the top of the iceberg. And then when we create our intervention, whether that's on a classroom level, tusk, tusk, I'm going to keep you in at break time or give you lines or detention. Or if it's school-wide, we're going to suspend you, we're going to exclude you, etc. If we are only dealing with the top of the iceberg, that intervention isn't going to work. It might work temporarily for some kids sometimes. My experience, especially since the lockdowns, is that's becoming less and less true. And it's because any intervention, any space coming back to a question where we're saying, okay, how can we help this kid communicate? How can we help meet their needs? How can we help remove the barriers that they have to learning? It has to deal with all of the bleep that's under the sea, (laughs) all of the rubbish that's under the sea as well. Otherwise, you're going to get repeated behaviours. And I'm seeing this a lot since lockdowns where, unfortunately, the current government's approach to this is often to create a more disciplined structure, heightened level of zero tolerance. And again, that can work for some children sometimes occasionally, but what do you do when a kid has a detention five days a week after school? What do you do? There's only so far you can go. I think you need, to me, I think, having a set of rules so everyone kind of knows where they are, Mm -hmm. but you need flexibility. You need to adapt. So you have these rules that everyone should follow, but not everyone can. But having those rules, my daughter likes going to air cadets, Mm -hmm. Yeah. You only go to air cadets if you like the rules and you like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of rules there and they like it because everyone follows the rules. And if if someone else doesn't, they get pulled up on it and then they follow the rules. But the problem is they all want to be at the air cadets. There's a school, you could try and have a similar thing, but there are kids who don't want to be there and that's that under the water Mm -hmm. iceberg part. And one of the things I just want to touch on is, is you've got to remember for a lot of these children, especially at secondary with all the hormones Mm -hmm. is I love to film inside out with those emotion buttons. And then you got this, and I loved it at the end where they get this giant new control board with all these different emotions and feelings coming Mm -hmm. on. And it is literally those kids are going, what does this button do? Bang. Oh, or someone else pushed that button. I didn't even know I had a button, which did that, but that button just got pushed by someone else and something's happened. I don't understand it. So generally, and I've, I've learned this from this recording of the podcast and talking to some of my amazing guests is, these children are dealing with something for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you deal with blah? They have no idea. They've got nothing to call back on. So when you ask an adult, 
or what would it take for you to throw a table, mm-hmm. you would go really, it would have to be really extreme. Yes. Because in reality, you've got so many strategies you've learned and used and pick up upon, which you would use instead of throwing a table. Yes. That means you won't throw the table. You'd write a stern letter of complaint. <laughs> yes. And you wouldn't even write kind regards at the end. You'd, you'd just write regards. <laughs> But you have all these strategies which you would do, but this is a child. Yes. Yeah, they might be six foot, Yes, but they're a child and they haven't got these experiences. And it's important to recognise, actually, this is the thing is, how do they? No one's kind of, you have to, and we do this as adults, yeah? You're going for your first interview as a Senko. You're really nervous. What do you do? Well, what you do is you... You look for others, you find out, you ask, you do this. You, you have all these strategies. When you come across an unknown situation or, an, or a situation where you're a bit nervous, you have things you do. But you've picked that up over the last 20 years. Yeah? Age 13, you don't, you don't have, have them. And there's a whole other layer on top of this, Dale. Um, what's really exciting in neuroscience in the last kind of 20 years they've discovered this developmental stage of the brain between the age of around eight and 24. So initially it was thought that the child brain was just like a smaller version of an adult brain and it went from child brain to adult brain. But what's been discovered now is there's a whole developmental stage around the teens, around the adolescence. And in this stage, and this explains exactly what you were talking about. So in this stage, the amygdala, which is the back, the kind of the top of the neck, for those not with a video, i.e. everybody, Adele points to <laughs> the back of her scalp, even though she's on a podcast. So the amygdala at the back of your head is responsible for the fight, flight or freeze. If you've watched Inside Out, you'll know this. So it's that panic. It's the, am I going to fight this person? Am I going to run away? Am I going to, whatever I'm going to do. Now, in a teenager or someone going between the ages of kind of eight and 24, this section of the brain is really developed. It's much stronger and more developed at the end of the limbic stem than the other parts of the brain. So this explains why you can sometimes say hello to a teenager and they say, what are you looking at? <laughs> because their reaction, they can't quite determine, like biologically, neurologically in their brains, they cannot quite determine whether you are a threat or not, whether you are that saber-toothed tiger. And so they need to react in case you are to protect themselves. And then the other part, of well, one of the other parts of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, which is in your third eye, so in between your eyebrows, this is the part of the brain that is responsible for rationality, for analysing, for reflecting, for drawing on past experiences, for deciding if something's going to be daft to do or not. And this part of the brain is not yet as developed in a young person. And so exactly what you're saying, Dale, not only do they not have the experience to draw on, but their brains are not wired (laughs) to even access that part of the brain that enables them to make as rational decisions, which then gives us that, unfortunately, kind of hideous statistics about young people who get into very kind of fatal accidents or very severe accidents because they are jumping off scaffolding or going joyride. Is it called joyriding, freeriding? What's it called? There's also twocking. You are going to have to explain that to me, Dale. What is twocking? Taking without consent. Wow. So it's when you kind of get a car. Yes. There's various videos. I think Hyundai's, there's literally someone's going to tick the video. Literally, I can jump into Hyundai cart and start it with nothing. Wow. I love that you know this, Dale. I'm, I'm down with the youth. Exactly. No, I, I saw a book called Twalking. Went, what? what? When, oh, that's like joyriding where you just, no, it's, oh, okay. Right. Fine. It's got, Tell it's, me, it's, apparently it's talking. It's got a new term. New, new, new word, new word. Mm-hmm. So this kind of, this then explains why we have, we can have such a reaction. And then if you put on top of that, a child who has had adverse childhood experiences, who has experienced abuse, neglect, trauma, it, what we are discovering is those kind of traumatic experiences literally change the neurological pathways in the brain. And there's a fantastic talk for those of you who love your TEDx talks by Dr. Nadine Burke. She is a doctor in America, in one of the estates. I can't remember which one. They don't call it estates, do they? What do they call it in America? 
the hoods. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean. Right. So in yeah. one of the poorer areas of a big city and what she's discovered, I'm going to paraphrase, please do look it up for all the proper stats. But what they discovered, she's like the equivalent of a GP. And they found that these children who had been through these traumatic experiences, or one of what we call the ACEs, which is a list of around nine or 10 adverse childhood experiences that can then, we've now seen prove, affect your, the way that you are able to function in society as an adult. But if you had four or more of those, we are, the, what Nadine's group discovered was that all sorts of things, you're more likely to get heart disease, you're more likely to get lung disease, you're more likely to have issues with brain damage, all these kind of health issues, let alone emotional responses to your teacher in your classroom at school. And so, ah, this is why I, I, I remember, we remembered that I asked to come on here because often SEND and SEMH are, are treated as separate things. And, and you were saying before we hit record, record, Dale, in a school, it can often be supported by two very different members of staff who don't necessarily cross over until it gets to EHCP stage. And it's all a kind of a weird system. But to me, as a behaviour and education specialist, working with these children, supporting schools to do so, I just, I, I, I see it very, very simply. Here is a kid who has a barrier to learning. Now that barrier could be that they're dyslexic and they need certain bits of scaffolding to enable them to read a text. Whereas this kid has barriers to learning and their barrier to learning might be that they have experienced something traumatic, they have a mental health issue, which means when they sit next to the door, they get really anxious and they can't concentrate. And all I have to do for my differentiation or my adapting as the teacher in my planning is think, well, if Sadia gets anxious by the door, how about I have a conversation with her and ask her where she would feel more comfortable so that she can learn. And that is me, as far as I'm concerned, removing a barrier as I would for any other SENDs so that Sadia can concentrate. Now, the alternative, my dog's having a ding-dong. The alternative is that I tell Sadia off because she's not concentrating and because she's wriggling around and because she's disrupting others. Now, it might be that I need to put the boundary down and that's, that's another thing I want to pick up. It might be that I need to reinstate um, the boundary or the expectation. And, and this for me is where it gets exciting and why I love my job. We have to have, you call them rules, it could be non-negotiables, it could be boundaries, it can be routines. We have to have these things in place. As human beings, routines make us feel safe. We know that. Look what happened in lockdown. We all went AWOL. When we were working in our pyjamas, not many people, I mean, the novelty was quite fun. And then, yeah. And particularly if we're working with young people with social, emotional, mental health issues, boundaries and routines are incredibly important. Unfortunately, some of those children will have had relationships with adults that have crossed in a very dangerous way boundaries. Yep. And therefore, schools holding those routines, boundaries, expectations are even more important. They make us feel safe. And, and you kind of alluded to this before, and we need that other 0.01% for when there's an unmet need that we need to do. So for example, we've got Sadia. They're all supposed to be quiet during the register. She's chatting to Laura, disrupting Laura. She's swinging on her chair. Why not? <laughs> And so, yes, it might be that I have to say, okay, Sadia, you spoke during the register. You know, that's a behavior point or a red, sad face or whatever your system is. But for me, the question is, and, like, and what else? And how can I help Sadia succeed next time? Because if, if she's struggling with this, what she's communicating to me, maybe not consciously, but what she's communicating to me is I'm having a trouble. There's a barrier here to me being able to access this part of the lesson. Yeah. Now, I, I am going to touch on that bit where you talk about different parts of the brain. I'm not going to say what they are because I, 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 I just don't remember. And, yeah, so one of the things I've come across and read about is something called the chimp paradox. And the chimp paradox is... And it's, I've someone there told me it's not quite technically correct, but the chimp paradox is in your head, you kind of have a monkey yep. and you have like a computer. 
yeah? And when you ask a question, the monkey is the thing which throws something at you, yeah? It just reacts, yeah? And I think that's a bit at the back of the brain, yeah? That's a bit which is just doing that reaction, yes. yeah? So you have your chimp. So you ask your question, the, the chimp just throws poo. It does something. And then you have this other part which is going, oh, well, that's what's been said. Now let's think about this. Okay. Mm. Now a good reaction would be this. The problem is, as teenagers, and a lot of people, the chimp rules. Yes. Yeah? We get the answer from the chimp. We go with mm-hmm. it. If we, if we could delay a little bit, we get another answer from the computer, and then you can go, oh, which one should I go for? But it's, it's like some people, they, they just they go on the chimp. The chimp is a bit, the computer is too slow, or it's not getting enough information to process, and things like that. And I like that idea, and I, and I said it to my kids, just don't tr- try not to react instantly. Just, just have a second, yeah? Just don't react instantly. Just hold it in, and you might get another option from that computer. It might enter your head as, I could also do this. And a podcast, which is one of my favourites I've done, was a podcast called Desperately Seeking Certainty with Dr. Jamie Calpin and Claire Ward, which was all about, we love this certainty, yeah? Yes. We all love certainty. And they talked about how it works and things like that, and it was just fascinating to listen. And kind of, we build this world based on our experiences, yeah? So if you hear a certain noise, you're, for the first time, you go, what's that? And you'll look at everyone else around you, and go, okay, that's a normal noise around here. No one's reacting. And you kind of use this information to understand the world around you. Now, I live in Sandhurst, so if I hear gunshots, it's the military. It's quite fine. Mm. If I'm somewhere completely different and I'm hearing gunshots, I'll be like, yeah, that's a gunshot. I know that. That shouldn't be here. I would then react differently. Yes. And this whole, it was fascinating, all this stuff, all this world. And he basically also said that everyone's world's different. So he talks about those aces. Yes. Those noises, those signs are going to be in their world, aren't in my world. So noises will have a different meaning for them. And you have things like that going on. But also what he pointed out is some children, this world, this understanding, they don't increase. So they don't learn that that noise is an all right noise. It always sparks them off. But the question is, why is that? Do they know why? It might be a subconscious thing. But yeah, it's, it's a fascinating world and watching my teenage daughters grow up is fascinating Mm. they are both anxious and worried about the world and it's interesting having conversations with them about the world and how they perceive the world and the other thing is we always talk about with SEMH the those pupils who are disrupting Mm -hmm. but there is also the other end of the spectrum but going back to that that girl interrupting that register is what is wrong with talking I, I never get that what is wrong with talking yeah we're in an office, yeah? There's lots of people working, and sometimes it's really quite noisy, other times it's quiet, yeah? If the work's getting done, does it matter if people are talking? That's the thing. And there's a whole load of stuff, and I'm not going to get into that, teachers. You've got a lot more experience of. But it's the teaching them good times, teaching them when to, teaching them when they shouldn't, yeah? And in that situation, if she's doing it every day, yeah? And you said, if you're doing something and you keep getting this, if you doing the same thing what's the reason but also if it's just once if it is just once that this happens has something happened to them that they need to let out they need to share with someone there's always a reason yeah if she's normally never talks but today she is you've got to sit there and go well why what's cracking up absolutely i want to share here a really practical strategy to help with this i have a blog on it you can look on my website but i'll briefly share the kind of outline of it As the classroom teacher, I do not need to hear yes, miss, times 33. It's quite boring, right? So what I do instead is I ask my young people to reply with one word, one to two words of how they're doing that day. It becomes a check-in. So at first, especially if it's teenagers, you'll get bored, bored, tired, all right. Okay, that's how it's... And also a bit of a competition. To see how far you can push it before she reacts. Exactly. So you'll get that to start with. Keep going through. Keep going. Keep going. And eventually you'll find that as the young people realise that this is a a space that's safe enough to share like a little bit, you know, they might be like, oh, actually annoyed. Or, oh, all right, actually. And things start to come up. And what is brilliant about this 
is you have, I call it like the litmus test at the start of the lesson. It's formative assessment. In the first two minutes of your lesson, as you're doing your register, you then know the the kind of emotional readiness for learning. Now, if I have a class, exactly what you just said with Sadia, if I have a class who are usually all right, all right, okay, okay. And then one day I ask the same question and I get, oh, well blagged, miss. (laughs) Or those kind of responses, then I know there's something cracked off at lunchtime. And and let's yep. say it was a fight and they're all buzzed up because there was a fight and like, I don't know, Sarah was falling out with her girlfriend and then and then Laura got involved and blah, 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 you know, all this stuff. I know that attempting a mock exam for the next hour and a half is going to be hard work. And so what I can do as the teacher is that I can provide the tools to help them regulate. So if in the first two minutes I find out they've all had a ding dong, then it's my job as the teacher, as the adult in the room, to provide those tools that will help them get back into a space where they can focus on learning. And I think the interesting thing is about behavior and social emotional mental health tools and strategies is on often those tools don't necessarily look like tools because a tool in that, you know, in that situation when I've been it for, I will do some stretching and some breathing because yep. I know that biologically the system needs to calm down. So if, if you're heightened, if you're all excited, if you're kind of anxious, if you're, you know, in that kind of mood, the body needs oxygen. The brain needs to slow down. The heartbeat needs to re-regulate. The breathing, the, the respiration system needs to calm down. And so I provide those tools for my young people. And it might, it might saying that going, sorry, for that, we should just do some breathing. And that, as an adult, you have lots of tools. When something comes down, you literally go, I'm just going to pop out for a smoke. Exactly. If we're in the 90s. Yeah. Or I just need, a, I need to, I need to go have a cup of coffee mm-hmm. or give me two minutes. Yeah. You've learned something which helps yeah. you. But again, these are teenagers Thank you. who don't have these skills, don't have these tools that they can use. And it might sound like this is it's a bit strange. But it is needed. And I, I saw a post in a social media group recently where someone was talking about similar sorts of stuff about trauma-informed this, trauma-informed that, we need to do all this, it really helps us. And almost the first response was, no offence, but I teach maths and I have enough to do without any of this. I'm struggling to teach maths as it is, now you want me to do all of this. And it was like, yeah, if you did this, the maths gets easier. Yes, yes. Yeah, you've got to... Be, they've got to be ready for learning. Yep. You can go to Maslow's hierarchy mm-hmm. of need and all of that stuff and go, yeah, if they're not w- wanting to be there, not, there's nothing you can do it, doing more maths or doing it louder or stricter mm-hmm. or shoutier or inquieter <laughs> to help. You've got to get them ready to be in that place. And I think two things there. Firstly, I love what you say. Stricter maths, <laughs> shoutier maths. Strict- yeah. Because you've got to enable the prefrontal cortex to engage. We need the prefrontal cortex and the brain to be ready to engage in order to take in new information. So if that is not engaged neurologically, we cannot take it in. It's just biologically not possible. But also for us to be able to help the young people get ready to learn, and this is the tricky part, we have to be in it ourselves because we are the regulators of the room as the adult. And it's interesting, when I wrote my book, the first chapter is about this. It's like, how can we stand in front of a class full of kids, asking them to be quiet and concentrate when we are shouting and screaming because we didn't have lunch, because we were running a detention or running a club and we were trying to do three meetings. And so we get in, we're heightened before we've even started the lesson. And then we're telling the kids to calm down. Like it just, it does not work. So the whole first chapter of my book is looking at that the fact that we have to have been able to look after look after ourselves and regulate first and it was very interesting because one of my proofreaders Ian Gilbert who is a, a fabulous man who's edited lots of books he wrote that book that's on my shoulder the working class he's he's done all sorts of things he proofread and he came back to me and he said okay love the book Adele yeah great really practical really useful lots of fun anecdotes he said but I just don't know why you're starting with this self-care at the start. Can't you just put in a couple of like quick win behavior tips? And I went away and the kind of, you'd be able to tell what kind of pupil I was. I was like, oh gosh, Ian Gilbert's told me to do that. Maybe I should do that. 
oh gosh, you know, I, I probably should. He's really experienced. This is my first book. Maybe he's right. And then I went away. And when I make big decisions, I go through a whole cycle of my menstrual cycle because I tend to think different things at different times of the month. And so I went away and I bled on it and I came back and I just thought, actually, every single school that I'm working with, every teacher, every school leader, every local authority, one of the biggest challenges to supporting kids' behavior is that we're not regulated ourselves. Like it has to begin there because that's the biggest mistake we're making. All of us have done it. I have definitely done it. You need to be quiet. We shout. And that's not what you're saying. That is not, you're saying it coming out of your mouth, but what you're saying is, I have a list of things I'm going to get through today yes. and you're getting in my way. Yes. That is actually what you're saying. And this poor kid has just gone, oh, I've just had a really bad lunch. And now you're shouting at yeah. me because you're in a bad mood. I, I know this does happen. My daughter in her school had this, the head of geography came in and shouted at the class, you should be thankful for your teachers and all this lot and all this lot. And a huge rant at them. And they're literally going, and none of them could work out what it was linked mm-hmm. to. Something might have happened in that class, but it could have been in a different <laughs> class. They just walked into the wrong classroom. Yeah, I, just, <laughs> whatever. But he was just, there was a class there, and he ranted at them. And my daughter, who is doing A-level geography and loving it and going off to degrees, is just literally going, what an idiot. Yeah. Yeah? And they are kids. Yes. But they learn. Mm-hmm. They learn about you teachers. Yes. I, yeah? A- and they will have favourite teachers and hating teachers, and probably not for the reasons you think. I had to... They will have... The favourite teachers will be the ones who have that flexibility and who are more human. Absolutely. I had this brilliant, brilliant... And I share this when I'm leading training on this on this topic. This brilliant situation. I went into a classroom. I'd been working with this class for two years. They were year 11, get them through their GCSEs. I'm an English teacher by trade and performing arts. And I started the lesson off. And this kid who, inverted commas, was low ability, he said to me, Miss, you're a bit more grumpy than usual. What's up with you? And I mean, we had quite a good relationship. And I said, I'm nothing, nothing I'm fine. You need to get with your work. And he went, no, Miss, no, no, no. You are not usually this grumpy. What's up? And I said, look, I was running the Amnesty International Club at lunchtime. I didn't get time to have my lunch. I'm fine, though. Let's just get on with it. And he just went, he kind of huffed at me and he went, Miss have your lunch. I said, I can't. There's a school rule that we're not supposed to eat in front of the children. And he just looked at me and he became just this like wise man at this point. He just went, miss, eat your lunch. Because he knew that if miss didn't eat her lunch, the next two hours of his life would be me getting at him, nagging at him, all the things, all the things. He knew that I needed to eat my lunch. And he knew something that I think often school systems forget, which is (laughs) the regulation of us as human beings biologically is way more beneficial than sticking to an arbitrary rule (laughs) about I'm not supposed to eat in front of children. And bless him, because we had a good relationship. You know what? I listened to him and I was like, he's right. Of course he's right. Of course he's right. We need food to function. But it took a kid to tell me, to remind me, because I think in general teachers, I mean, we're martyrs, aren't we? That thing is, you might think you're putting your face on. You might Mm -hmm. think you're Mm -hmm. fine. But other people notice, yeah? And then when they notice, you get offended. Yeah, I'm not grumpy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm having a conversation. You went, you weren't yourself. And I just went, oh, I thought I hid Mm. that. And you, you just, you know underneath, but you put a face on, but you are tetchier, you are just snappier, and you react. Um, and that's the thing. I'm just going to touch on that low ability. I always hate, I hate that phrase. Yes. Because what they really mean by low ability is does not produce the written work in line with the school's policies for doing blah, 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 blah towards their GCSEs. That's what you mean. It doesn't mean low ability. Absolutely. It's just... It's that whole, if you, that whole Einstein thing about measuring everyone the same yes, way. Absolutely. I think one of the topics that I'm at, often asked to talk about is, is around equality and inclusion when it comes, I mean, from a wider, wider point of view, but also particularly with SEMH kids or kids in care. 
And I think that there's this myth that equality means the same. So for me to be equal in my class, I've got to treat everybody exactly the same. That's equal. That's not. That's robots. I can be equally understanding. I can be equally compassionate. I can be equally kind to people in my class. But I know that Warren needs to get up every 10 minutes and have a little jiggle around because he's got ants in his pants. Maybe he's got ADHD, you know. who. So I make Warren the plant watering monitor. Whereas Laura, I know, is... I've said Laura a lot today. I don't know what's up with Laura. Let's call her Lily this time. Whereas Lily, for example, I know is really shy and can sometimes verge on non-verbal. And so I know for her sometimes I need to differentiate by giving her a, a chart that she can point at or making sure she's sat next to someone that she feels comfortable with. Now, if I made Lily the watering monitor who then had to like go to the reception, get the watering can, ask the people, do this. That would freak her out. That's she's that's that's not gonna help Lily in that stage. Equally it wouldn't help Warren to have a chart that he'd have to point at when really he wants to sing and dance. I am meeting their needs in different ways equally. It doesn't mean I'm meeting them in the same way. Yes. And that's the thing is it's I think yeah, I get between equality and equity and all things like that. But yeah, to me, it is that equal. It is what does each child need to succeed? Yeah. yeah. If for half the class it means this and the other half it means that, then that's what you do. What most schools end up doing is they think this works for 90%, so the other 10% have to fit in. And I know I was a nightmare in school. I was absolute nightmare i just my mum was a teacher i had a good insight into teaching which came across as arrogant because <laughs> i knew but in reality it was arrogant because i was 13 14 and and yeah i was horrible i did that i would i'm easily distracted i didn't do the written work it's just things i didn't do and i generally just was fascinated by anything else other than what the teacher was saying However, what's really annoyed the school is I would generally get the top marks in the test. you are annoying, yeah. (laughs) So, yeah, and I've actually got my reports and I've looked through them all and I've just gone, oh, I get this now. I really understand this. And I was this horrible, but the way I learn, yeah, I've now worked out how I learn. I've now perfected how I learn in situations. So I still go off and do courses with Microsoft. I go off and spend a week in a classroom and when I say a week in a classroom I'm talking from half eight in the morning to nine at night I am in a classroom for 12 and a half hours apart from for a couple of quick breaks and a lunch break but you are allowed to go get a drink when it suits you so you are allowed to just go out grab a drink and come you back to so that's to a bit of movement now. break you are allowed to go to the toilet mm. yes without a pass or <laughs> anything like that but also what I've learned is you choose your own seat and I choose to sit at the back. The reason for that is I sit on my chair and I swing on my Mm -hmm. chair and I play with things and I'm on social media and I'm checking my emails because the person in that room isn't occupying my mind. The teacher is boring. Mm -hmm. However, that's my problem, not the teacher's Mm -hmm. problem. Yeah. They are doing everything they can and everyone else is engaged, but I'm not. However, it is going in. Yeah but that's only taking 20% of mm-hmm. my brain. I need to somehow occupy at least half my brain or I will not be in that room at all. So I have to do some other things, but I'm still learning and I pass my exams, but that's what works for me. So me being at the back means I'm not distracting yes. those in front. I'm not sitting there we're going, why is he doing this? And that's the thing, it does make your whole classroom manager and where people sit mm-hmm. – yeah, because I would often be put at the front because I was easy and I was told to sit a certain way and then I just wouldn't be listening. Of course not. I was just, yeah. And it just, it never actually helps. There are children it will help. But these days we've learned lots better things than just sit still, don't swing any chair, put your arms in it. We've learned that conformity isn't best for yes. everyone. I think there we've got this question. I had a brilliant professional tutor when I did my PGC, and he talked to us about the difference between learning and complying. They are different things. 
Now, sometimes when you walk past my classroom, it looks like a complete chaos because we're reenacting a battle from Macbeth. So I'll have kids on the tables. There'll be like things pretending to be daggers and shields. And it looks, if you just walk past that, like I'm in absolute, you know, free fall. But actually what we're doing is learning the very important lesson around the chaos that can be brought through battle and war, which to me is a pretty key lesson in the world. And I only take a class that far if I know I've got them. If I know that when I say, okay, tidy up, or careful, you're about to stab Susie in the eye, that they listen to me. You know, that's not, that's not my first activity yep. when I meet a class. That's something that I would build up to. And so you don't have war as your icebreaker? Not usually. No, that's more for my teacher training. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, find it on my website. Behaviour training with the Dalmates. So, but I think, yes, I can, you know, when you walk past my classroom, that might look chaotic. And I, I had this, I had a, it was interesting once I worked in a mainstream school where I had a head of department who was very, very clean and tidy. She liked everything tidy, everything clean everything very calm and, and compliant. And it's it's not how I teach. And I'm also not saying that the way I do it's the best. The way I do it works for me. So the first point is about the fact that learning looks different in different contexts for different people in different ways. And, you know, your story completely proves that. Equally, there are situations in the current system as the education system is. And I, I'm very honest with children and this can help, I've discovered, this level of honesty. I can say to a kid who doesn't give an F about exams, doesn't get the point, can't sit still, etc. I can say, look, in these lessons, we can be working in this way that really works for you. We can be doing whatever it is, those battle scenes, the group work. You can sit under the desk and read the book. I don't care as long as you read the book. But I've also, as your teacher, got to help you play the game of society. And the society that we happen to be in is that these GCSEs are deemed as an indicator. I work with colleagues who were in care who don't have those GCSEs and their lives have been harder because of that. So how about, like, I'm not saying these exams are the most important thing. I'm not saying sitting in a row in silence is the most important thing with your shirt tucked in and your tie a certain length. I'm not saying they're the most important things, but as your teacher, it's my duty to help you access the society that we live in. And I often find that that conversation can be received a lot more openly and the engagement increases because I've been honest. I haven't pretended that GCSEs are the most important, or, you know, whatever you're at, SATs are the most important thing that you ever, da, 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 da. they're not. And unfortunately, lockdown has proved that. A lot of schools are coming to work with me at the moment saying one of their biggest issues is motivation around behaviour. Kids not motivated to learn. Kids not motivated to do their exams. Well, then what you have to do is you have to think bigger. Why would they be? Why would they be motivated to do their exams? They've just had a... Because, because the school's telling exactly. them to, because someone else is telling the school to. And that's a, to me, the, what I've learned, how I learn, context. Yeah. Yeah? I, why are we learning this? Because it's for an exam. <sighs> yeah. Well, I don't care about an exam, so why am I even going to bother? I'm not doing it. And if I just got to learn it for an exam, why are you learning it? Because you are going to use this in life. And although we are talking about Macbeth and war, is at some point you are going to be in a situation where you're trying to deal with lots of different views and you've got to work out what you want to do. There'll be things like that going on in their lives. But also, if you can explain to them that actually, especially English and maths and getting fours, is if you don't have that, your options in yes. future life will be severely limited. And if you like Nike trainers, you need to get fours in English and maths so you can buy Nike trainers. Yes. Otherwise, you will have no chance of buying <laughs> yes. those trainers. It's that context, that motivation is much mm -hmm. bigger. And where is this taking me? What am I doing this for? It's really big. And I do feel is being pushed out of the education system. Now, there was something else I wanted to say, but you, you had a second point. So coming back to the theme of this podcast, engaging with young people with SEMH, I think the other really important aspect of this is there isn't one way to do it. Our current government and a lot of newspaper and media supports this, churns out this idea that there's one way to go about doing behaviour. If you do this routine, this thing, this thing and this thing, you'll have great behaviour. If that were true, nobody would ever get a detention and our prisons would be empty. 
It cannot be true. And this is because behavior is about context. The way that we behave in different contexts is going to change. So the approaches to behavior need to. And I think the other thing that this rhetoric that is coming from the Department of Education and the current government does is it sets teachers and teaching staff up for a fall that I think is completely unhelpful. So let's say the way that you approach 9F2 is completely different to the way I approach them. For example, you might be able to tell I'm all singing, all dancing, put the desk aside, let's reenact this, you know, those kind of things. Whereas Mrs. Singh down the corridor, all she has to do is lift her left eyebrow and the entire class sits in alphabetical order, (laughs) picks up their pen and begins, right? Myself and Mrs. Singh have completely different approaches. Both of us have excellent behaviour management. And what I find, especially for early career teachers around behaviour, is they'll start getting themselves in knots and start going, oh, but I'm supposed to be able to do this and I'm supposed to be able to do that. And we cannot pretend that there's not a gender split here as well. If you think of the classic person who deals with the, I'm I'm inverting commas, all this stuff, deals with the inverted commas challenging behavior, it is usually a man in senior management who comes down and deals with that in a certain way. That works for them. Fine, works for him. And if you're that early careers teacher who happens to be a 22-year-old female, how are you, what are you doing? You're standing there going, what, I've got to now like try and be like this man who's old enough to be my dad and try and speak to the kids like that. The kids, and if you're working with the kind of kids I do, will see through that and tell you about it in four letter words, right? And so if we want to be sustainable for ourselves, going back to that point I said about we have to be able to regulate ourselves first. If we, when we're working with young people who are hard to engage with or or have these behavioural barriers, it is emotionally exhausting in a different way. Yep. If we are dealing with conflict, abuse, defiance, et cetera, et cetera, it can be exhausting. And so the way that you are going to find from a personal level on kind of a classroom level, the way for you to, to create a way that works is to find a way that's sustainable. It's got to be an extension of who you are as a person already. Yes. There is no point me trying to be like Mrs. Singh. I just look ridiculous trying to stand still. It doesn't work. And the kids know. And I think that, I mean, this is something that I do in my training as well, is is I encourage people to find their own ways through this thing. And something we haven't kind of highlighted hugely here, but is underlining a lot of it, is building those relationships. And the way that I can build a relationship is very different to the way that you can. I mean, this, especially in alternative provision, there's often teachers who are really good at that, like, down with the kids, you're right, high five, this, that, and the other. I sound like Ali G being Mary Poppins when I try and do that. I just eat from the Midlands. Like, it doesn't work. <laughs> and the kids are like, what's up with her? Like, there's literally no point in me trying to high five a child. It doesn't work. But that doesn't matter. It doesn't mean I can't build a relationship with them. But I need to build a relationship starting from, and it comes back to me being in a regulated space in order to be able to do so. And it has, it's got that relationship. The teachers I remember are the teachers who brought a bit of themselves into the classroom. They brought a bit of their personality in. Yeah, so I knew something about them. My form tutor in secondary school supported Port Vale. I had no idea who Port Vale was. I actually looked it up to go, oh, God, they're rubbish. Aww. Why do you support that? So that's what I bought in. It's like, why would you support them? They're like in the second league. <laughs> so there's that conversation. There's that thing. And it's bringing something. And it's being real. It's being vulnerable. Not full on. But, you know, showing that you don't, you're not perfect. You're not a machine. You're not a robot. It's, and it's about that respect is really, really important. Now, I've not been a teacher. I've done something which is much harder, which is coaching football. It's not harder. But I used to coach my daughter's football team, and it was, a, it, was, it was a streaming club, which meant I had the bottom team, which had the worst players or the brand-new yeah. players. Yeah. We did the training on Friday night. A whole week of yeah. school. And then I have to try and, I'm going to say the words control, mm-hmm. but I'm trying to help them learn <laughs> and teach and enjoy what we're doing. And I got told by various people what you do. 
and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I went on my course and I learned very different things. And basically what I learned is be me. Yeah. Be respectful. Ask them how their week's going. Ask them what's going on. Get a bit of an idea of where they are and go with that. And it worked. And we had a great team. Yeah. And they liked it. And it was just really, and it just that taught me how you've got to be, don't take someone else's way of doing it. You've got to find your way which is going to, as you said, it's going to be an extension of mm-hmm. you. And that will build respect, which works both yes. ways. So when you do say, don't do that, mm. or do, they will listen to you because they respect you because you have an understanding of them and they have an understanding of yes. you. And I think that, I mean, it's tricky. I'm just, I was just listening to you imagining I was at the start of my teaching career because then I go, hang on, I've just got to be me. That's like going on a date, isn't it? Just be yourself. Who am I? What? (laughs) I think there are tools, you know, there are tools that you can try. There are tools that 99% of the time do work that you can use. Like I've just shared the registration one. I've also got a resource, a blog on my website about how to establish relationships quickly with children you don't usually teach. That's a useful one. There are strategies and tools you can pick up, but the point is you pick, you pick them up. That's the point. And if you realise, if I do that, I will sound like Jasper Carrot doing Ali G, doing Mary Aww. Poppins, got to add the Brummy Jasper Carrot in there. Then, and you're literally going, no, then you know it's not going to work. Just because someone tells you it will work, if you look at it and go, no, that's not me, then don't do it. Yeah, find something which does work for you. Or just, you might not find anything which works. You might just go, actually, one of my favourite, my, my daughter's form to you, to my eldest, they always talked about the Bake Off, Great, ba- great British Bake Off. Some people were interested in it. Some people weren't. But it was a way to connect with those. And she probably did other things for other children. Yeah. It got to the point that Christmas every year, my, day, my daughter baked cookies for her Aww. class. Yeah. Because she knew that her teacher liked it. Others liked the baking. Everyone liked cookies. Mm-hmm. So she would do things. But it made a little connection. And it is those little connections. It's If you think about the people you remember in your life, it's the people you know something about. If it's your teachers, it's something either that happened, but generally, and especially I look at my teachers, they were those who were just trying to be scary. And I sadly learned it was just a show. And I saw straight through it and it didn't work. Lots of children, at that point, children didn't. But children, especially teenagers, will know you have a set of rules you have Mm -hmm. to follow. Yeah. And they know those rules and they know that you can't follow up your threats. You can't do this thing because if they just do this, what are you going to do? And the answer is you've got nothing. And they know this. So you're trying to be that strict person, blah, 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 blah. You haven't got anything to back it up. And, so why and try also it? to say there are some people who are naturally like that. Like I'll get asked often this whole don't smile before Christmas. What do I think? And the answer is it depends who you are. I smile all the time. If I tried to not smile before Christmas, I'd look like the Grinch trying to hold it all in. Like it'd be really weird. And yet I have worked with some of the most fantastic colleagues who don't smile that much. Just naturally, that's just not their face. <laughs> and so for them to try and smile before Christmas would look equally odd. So it depends. Are you a smiley person or not? No. See, I know if I was in the classroom, especially at secondary school, it would be I would lead with dad jokes. <laughs> I love dad jokes. But the important thing with a dad joke is they've got to be clean. Mm -hmm. They've got to be something you can say to Mm -hmm. a six-year-old. So that's the thing. It makes it, you can't just grab any old joke. It's got to be something really Mm. simple, really childish. But you know, when you start saying them, the people, they always, always think of their own. They always come back and everyone knows me for my bad jokes. There you go. Yeah. So that would be me. I would be just making bad jokes. But that's the thing is, if you are making jokes... People can laugh at you and that is fine. And also going back to engaging with young people with SEMH, by us being fallible, by being a little bit ourselves, we're giving them permission to do so as well. I'm an English teacher. My spelling is not the best, right? It's just not my top skill set, right? And so I have spelt things wrong on the board. And then I go, and then one of the kids will like smugly go, Miss, you've spelt that wrong. And I'll be like, oh my goodness. You're right. I have spelt it wrong. What do we do about it? Who knows how to spell it? Nobody knows. Okay, so what do we do when we don't know how to spell a word? And suddenly it becomes a teaching point. It is okay to not know how to spell a word. 
the the yeah. the whole education system doesn't end if we don't know how to spell a word. The best thing to do though is to then go, okay, if we don't know information, how can I help these young people? How can I model it basically? How can I model not knowing something and what we do about that? That is way more useful than what? No, no, it's fine, it's right, it's right, you know. But also yeah. just to say as well, there are some teachers who are brilliant who very, very rarely share anything kind of personal about themselves. But what they do do still is they still connect in the moment with young people. So this is not yes. necessarily about, I mean, like I'm an out bisexual teacher. I'm quite happy to share that with young people. And that does actually help a lot of young people in, for various reasons. But some teachers are not, don't feel safe to come out still. Yes, in Britain. Yes, in I was working in Brighton at the time. That's a whole other conversation. But what but the fact, the fact you just mentioned the word sexual and teacher is a whole revelation to yeah. some children anyway. I mean, some, in some <laughs> classes, I will lose 20 minutes. If I say I'm bisexual, it's like, oh, this is sex. <laughs> so I have to be prepared for losing 20 minutes of my lesson. It's a bit like the wasp, sex and wasps. It's the yes. same thing. But the point is, like, I am in a place in my life where I feel safe enough to do that. Not everybody will. It yeah. might be that you're going through a divorce. You don't want to share that with the kids. But what you might share is just I'm having a harder time so I might be a bit quieter I might sit down more you know it's not about you (laughs) using your kids as therapy please find the support for that elsewhere but but it's it's about just admitting in the moment actually if you know your kids and you've had those for the last seven months and you kind of I'm just having a bad day they will change to you they will go I'll leave that. Or I was going to moan about. I was going. To, they literally before they say it, that part of their brain will go. Yeah, she's not in the yeah. mood for that. I won't say that. That will kick in. Yeah, and they might just do things. They might support things, and they just go. Yeah, I went through a rubbish mm. time. Yeah, and you were really nice to me, and you didn't pull me up on stuff. So, and I, I would, I would just go even further than that. You just said if we've been working with kids for the last seven months, I had a class. I was doing supply teaching. It was years ago, and I was about to go in and. That night before, unfortunately, my uncle passed away, one of my uncles. And I decided I still wanted to go in, like I felt okay to. But of course, I didn't quite know how I was going to react. And I got this class, it was a year 10 class. And the classic thing, we haven't talked about this today, but you can look at it on my website. The kind of negativity, negativity bias was put in. A couple of teachers came up to me and went, oh, you've got that year 10 class. Oh, be careful. Their behavior can be really bad. So great. It's already programmed into, into my head that this is going to be a bad class. Anyway. I walked in and I made the decision. I said, look, I know you don't know me. I know I'm a supply teacher to you, but I am going to let you know that I've had some sad news. There's been a bereavement in my family. My uncle passed away last night. I said, I'm okay. I feel okay to be here, but I want you to know that if I go quiet, if you know I look a bit sad, that's why. And obviously the subtext there is, it's not that you've made the supply teacher cry, right? That's the subtext. Yes. That class for a double period were put in my hand because they got it. And I didn't know any of them. I didn't even know any of their names. And I've been told that they were the inverted commas naughty class. But they were able to give me that respect because maybe they've experienced bereavement or they've, you know, seen it somewhere else in wherever. And they had enough kind of emotional intelligence and humanity to go, all right, okay. If I hadn't have shared that and they saw the supply teacher crying, well, I wonder what they would have done. <laughs> you know? But that's the thing is, it's that thing is a lot of the time children will see a teacher as yeah. a robot, or just something to yeah. poke. The moment you turn into a human, they're not going to poke you. They're not going to do the same sort of thing. And one thing I just want to touch on before we wrap up is school rules, yeah. school non-negotiables, Yeah. yeah? If you have rules in your school and children are breaking them, please just sit there and go, have I ever in any situation in my adult life ever had to follow a rule this strict, this ridiculous? Yeah, I I know of a school where they changed from pleated skirts to non-pleated skirts or something. Things like It was something ridiculous and 180 children ended up on internal exclusion on the first day. And I'm literally going, does it matter the type of skirt? Yeah, the length, yes, that matters. Yes, 
but within anything, and also it's you just change the rules over the summer. There are so many reasons why they might not be doing it right now. There are so many rules. Why do we have rules that strict in these schools that are never followed anywhere else? Yeah, unless you're joining the army. So, and in which case, the, the clothing's replied for you. <laughs> so, I had a young person ask me exactly the same question. I have three non-negotiables in my classroom. It depends on the setting. Usually, it's something like when they walk in, they have their shirts tucked in. They at the end of the session, they're always silent before they leave, and then some other thing. I can't remember. It depends on which class it is. But this kid asked me the exact same question you've just asked. He said, why, why do you bother? Why do you have these things? It really doesn't matter. I'm still going to learn as well with my shirt tucked in. I said, absolutely, I 100% agree with you. And I said, if I'm going to take you to those battle scenes, if I'm going to push you hard so you can do as well as you possibly can in your exams, I need some kind of ability to know that we are able to have that discipline within our community. So probably similar to your football coaching, you have got to teach a self-discipline in order to be that. Yeah. So what I said to him was the rules are actually arbitrary. They could be anything. And, and I said to him, yeah. and also I personally have the perspective, if your shirt slips out because you are stretching to get a bag, I am not going to give you a detention for that. that. To me, that would be absolutely ridiculous. But I am going to keep some things that I am going to keep on because it gives us that that framework in which that we can all work. And I think what you're talking about is the difference between a blanket rule that somebody in the hierarchy above decides and something that is negotiated within the classroom or the community and go, actually, these are going to be the values that we decide. I've read, have you read The Secret Bannister? No. Terrifying. But it's just some schools just have this zero yes. tolerance on really strange rules. And Rules are there because you are going to go into a world where yes. you have to follow yeah. rules. Yes. You are going to have to learn in the same way you kind of don't swear in front of teachers, but you can say what you want yeah. in the playground. But also you're wearing the uniform, so don't bring us into disrespect. That, yeah, that is going to go yeah. with you for life. Yeah. Things like that, yes, without a doubt, you've got to learn. You swear in this situation, you don't swear in this situation. You do this language here, you use this yes. language here. You respect, you wait your turn, you do all that. Completely agree with all of them. It's a level of respect, a level of understanding. But some of these strict rules at some of these schools... I think what's interesting is often they pick uniform. Often they pick uniform. And what happens is that becomes a bigger issue and the learning goes out the window. In an ideal world, I would not be a behaviour and education specialist. I'd be something like a learning focuser, but it doesn't sound as good. But the reason is everything that I'm doing to support behavior is always about how do we get back to the learning? How do we get back to the learning? How do we get back to the learning? How do we make, you know, how do we remove those barriers? How do we build bridges? And I think you're right. Sometimes schools pick particularly uniform or it could be chewing gum. That's another fun one. But one tiny thing. And yes, I understand that that's useful from what the point of view I was saying in terms of if you get, you know, sweat the small stuff and then it doesn't it doesn't increase. And you've got to put with that, where are we actually stopping learning ourselves? Because we're getting so focused on our own rule. Yes. But it, it kind of goes out the window. I, I was doing a training once and there was a, a group of sick form teachers doing a discussion and they were supposed to be discussing some kind of behavior thing. And they came up to me and they went, look, we really need to get to the bottom of this. Should sick formers have a uniform or not? And they were looking to me as the behavior and education expert as if I had this golden answer. And I was like, well, Yes and or no. It really depends on your context. Like there are countries across the world who don't have uniforms and they have better education systems than us. There are countries across the world who have stricter uniforms than us and they have it. Like you, there's not, and I think this is the thing about behaviour, there isn't a silver bullet. There isn't a silver I bullet. I would say at sixth form, don't have a uniform. Tell them to dress smart, ready for learning, Yeah. And then you're giving them a bit of freedom that they have this choice to express themselves, but it's got to fit within these rules. Because if you're going to go into an environment in mm. London, you're going to have to dress a certain way. So you've got to go, yes, you can wear what you want, but it's kind of got to fit within these guidelines rather than being strict. I mean, that's, that's an option. You see, there are so many options. It's the um. only option. <laughs> <laughs> I just, yeah, I, I, I'm... 
there are so many arguments here that are aware, and I see the benefit of a uniform because there's a whole thing about poverty and acceptance and being the same. There's things like that and blah, blah, blah. I agree. But don't do strict. Don't do the right skirt. Don't do this. Don't do why. It's just I've seen one that was like the, the tights couldn't be, had to be yes. opaque or something. And just like what impact does that have apart from you putting control? And if you have a real pushback from your students and your parents, why can't you collaborate and do this? Why are you drawing these battle lines? Because what you've just done is you've just across the whole of the school said, this is the line. And you're then undermining all the teachers who are trying to be work together yes. and we'll work this together to actually know you're, you're on one side of the line. We're on the other. I don't like that. <laughs> it should be in every situation. It should be collaborative. Well, we've sometimes they don't understand all the rules and you can get their opinion and explain actually, well, yes, that's great. But actually we've also got to, but take their yeah. opinion on board. I mean, it's proven and, and this is kind of across societies as well as in schools. That if we, this is what I was saying about the secret banister. That's where I read it. Barrister, sorry, not banister. <laughs> barrister. Oh, my head is trying secret to go secret banister. banister. Secret banister. There we go. But they talk about it's proven that if we have a buy-in into the way that our society or our community is run, we are more likely to follow it. So you know, use that as your classroom. Use that as your school. Use that as your town. Use that as your country. That's that's kind of where we're at. I think, you said we're going to be wrapping up. What I'd like to share is that we, I mean, we've brought up so many topics today. Like, just where have we gone? Where have we gone? If you're sitting here and you've got further questions or there's a specific thing that you need help with in your school or classroom or if you're a parent or carer with your young people, I have a pick, pick my behaviour brain call that you can do. So jump on my website and you can book that in with me. We can continue this discussion in a a one-to-one kind of more useful specific scenario because Dale and I are just going to go on 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 and on I can see it <laughs> I know because you but I was gonna say what I always do is I wrap up is I always say thank you for coming oh, on the show and we're putting links to oh, things great. that I've mentioned and given these links I'm going okay I don't know what that link is and I was going to click on it after we recorded to go because somebody showed me it's like a collection of all their resources they found and I said, but it, it's like we use calendly links but it's that sort of thing it's booking a call which time it suits them really really cool so, yeah, so you'll find those in the show notes along with Adele's contact details. So you can get her on Twitter and things like that. And you'll find the show notes on our website or wherever you listen to the podcast. So wherever you're listening, you'll find those links in there so you can book those. So thank you for listening to the show. If you haven't subscribed already, click on that subscribe button. You can follow us on all of the social medias on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for The Sendcast and you'll find us. And as always, I'm always going to mention B-Square because if you're struggling to show progress, if your assessment point process is overcomplicated, takes too long, or you can't show progress or it's not helping you, have a look at the B-Squared website or book a free online meeting with me so I can take you through our products. So we have a range of assessment products to help all schools across Scotland, England and Wales to help show those small steps of progress for pupils with SEND. And if you're not sure about the engagement model, the pre-key stage standards, the new curriculum for Wales and how you show assessment, assess, show progress for your pupils with ALN, get in contact. And you can find out about our online training, our conferences, read our blog, watch our webinars. It is all on the B-Squared website. And you'll find a link to the website and to book a meeting with me in the show notes. So thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Sendcast. It's goodbye from me. <laughs> ta from me. Bye. 